Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Ask Me Anything About Employment with Dory. My name is David Blair, and I'll be your moderator today. Uh, this webinar is not a presentation, but an interactive question and answer period. For the next hour, Dory will take any questions you have related to returning to school as a pathway to employment. Dory Hutchinson has worked at the Center for Psychiatric Rehabilitation for 34 years. She currently serves as the Director of Sur uh, the Services Division, uh, which serves women, men, and young adults who have lived with serious psychiatric illnesses who may be also be homeless, at risk of home and experiencing significant core uh, comorbidities. I am stumbling all over my words. Uh, we just had a fire alarm here go off, and I, just about 30 minutes before this event started, and so I've been scrambling to pull everything together again. Uh, today's event is jointly funded by the National Instability, Independent Living and Rehabilitation Research, and the Center for Mental Health Services within the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. The content of this webinar does not represent the views or policies of the funding agencies, and you should not assume endorsement by the federal government. Uh, during registration for the event, you were given the opportunity to submit a question in advance. Over the course of the webinar, we'll alternate between questions submitted in advance and the ones you have today. Uh, you can ask your questions now by typing them into the chat box. So welcome to the webinar, and I hope you enjoy the next hour. And welcome, Dory. Thank you for taking Thank you. Uh, your time. I am uh, delighted to be here, everyone, and um, I'm seeing where you're all coming from. And I'm, I have to give a personal shout-out to the folks from Maine. I'm a Mainer, so <laughs> delighted to have you on the call. I grew up in Maine myself and went to college in Maine, so I'm a big fan. Oh, where did you go to college, Dory? I went to Bowdoin College in Maine way back when in the in the uh, middle late 70s. So, <laughs> but I go back to I go back to Maine every summer because I I need to get a dose. So uh, yes, and for anyone who's not in Boston, it's it's finally yesterday. I think it was above 70 for the first time in a while, and the skies were not gray. It was gray here for an entire week, solid, a little rough. So, uh, we're gonna get started here. Anyone who has a question, and, and hi, uh, Luis from uh, Pennsylvania, someone from Washington, anyone who has a question, please just type it in the chat box, and I'll, I'll be sure to read it for you. And I, I have a list of questions that people submit in advance story, so I'm going to start with uh, some of those until we get some people asking in the room right now. Okay, um, great. So uh, Joseph um, from Connecticut, Fesser, and, and is asking, uh, what kind of safety net wellness plan and charting uh, work should a student be putting in place before which has a series of questions but I'll, I'll start with that one okay so great question and it, it sounds like you're asking about a student who took a leave of absence because of a mental health reason um, and so you know this is something that um, is very individualized and many schools do it differently the bottom line is that whatever the school um, requires from any student who goes out on a medical leave, it should be the same for a student with a mental health condition. We work with tons of students with mental health conditions from all over the country to help them return to school in my services division. And what we do is we sit down with those students to find out what was it that um, got in the way, what was the obstacle to staying in school, was it a wellness-related issue, was it that potent intersection between wellness and academic, academic demands, or was it uh, a wellness and a social issue? And, and 
whatever the answer is to that question, then we begin to help that student build a plan for return. Um, you know, treatment for some students works really, really well, and for other students, uh, more holistic alternatives work really, really well. Um, so mandating treatment is not something we can do, but sitting with students and figuring out what is it that got in the way of you staying and finishing, and then what can we plan for so that when you meet those obstacles again, uh, you can navigate them with more resilience and successfully stay in school. Uh, and, and so the, the next follow-up, kind of nice. how would you go about goal setting? How would I go about goal setting? So we do coaching meetings with students um, and, you know, start with what, it, what their goals are for their time in school. Most students want to finish. Right? That's why they're going to school. And they may have a particular path they want to take. Um, and taking a look at that, um, and the kinds of resources and supports they might need to reach those goals. And what's really important to think about is, and I, I talk about this a lot, is that on college campuses, whether it's a community college or it's a four-year college, uh, we've done a pretty good job of making it accessible to students who have physical challenges. We've done less of a good job for students with psychiatric and mental health challenges. Um, you know, if you look at, at most, most college campuses will have um, doorways and bathroom buttons and ramps for students who are in chairs. That makes the place accessible. What we find for students with mental health conditions, it's often people that can make the difference and, and are really important supports. So when we sit down and we look at a student's goal, we look at what kind of people do they have helping them to support their journey through their academic uh, career so they can get out and move on and get the kind of work that they want to get. Yeah. You, you know, you just mentioned here a second ago that it's that people difference. Who are those types? So, you know, they can be anyone. I always like to tell people just one person, one caring person can make a difference. And we know that from the research, particularly around children and young adolescents, that one caring adult can make a difference. So when you get pushback from faculty and staff who say, well, I'm not a clinician and it's not my job to be concerned about this student's mental health, I might counter that it is your job to care about that student and it is your job to know about the resources on your campus. Um, and asking that student if they would be willing to use the campus resources for mental health. And But there's so many resources. Uh, we like to think that there's no wrong door. It could be a chaplain on campus. It could be uh, behavioral medicine services on campus. It could be a dean of student. Um, it could be uh, an athletic coach that the student is connected to or an RA. Um, we know that the density of that student's social network makes a difference. Um, isolation is, you know, not good for anyone and often students despair um, and not doing well. And the other important thing to know, and I'm sure all of you know this, but I'm just going to set it as sort of foundational information is that the research is incredibly strong that academic success is tied to positive mental health, not just for students with serious mental health conditions, but all students in general. So there's a real, um, there's a real evidence base for making an investment in student mental health on college. Yeah. And what sort of role would uh, the family play in, in this process? So, so family, this is a tricky one, right, because of the, uh, of the laws of, of FERPA and HIPAA. Um, and once a student turns 18, 
Um, schools do not have to share information with families about their child, which makes many parents really upset. But having had three children go to college myself and three different schools, three different types of schools, when students are entering, there is a box to check. And this is when parents and children need to have this conversation of um, the schools may share information about me uh, with my parents. And students can check that box and sign it. They give permission. Parents also always have the right, if they're worried about their young adult, to call a student, to call the college and say, I feel worried about my child. I know you can't say anything to me about them, but I need you to know why I feel worried. Um, and schools will do wellness checks, and they will check in with that student. They can't share any information in return if your child did not check that box. Um, so families can have all sorts of levels of involvement. And schools, I think, more and more recently realize the importance of having positive family involvement. And so many schools send out information through, you know, websites on college websites, you know, information for parents. Um, nowadays, students bring their parents to college, right, because of this. They're very attached, more so than I certainly was. I called my parents once a week for under three minutes so that my parents wouldn't be charged for a phone call. Um, nowadays, I walk behind students on campus here at BU, and they're on the phone with their moms and dads a lot. So colleges have realized that engaging parents in a positive way is an important, uh, important activity to do um, so that students also realize the importance of that. Um, if, you are, if students are from other countries as well, um, having those conversations about whether or not they want their families to know what's going on is also really important, and there's some cultural considerations particularly when we're talking about mental health. Sure. And for anyone who's listening and doesn't know what FERPA is, it is the uh, Family Educational Rights and Privacy. Thank you, David. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I used an acronym. <laughs> and then HIPAA is the uh, Health Insurance uh, Portability and Accountability Act. Both, both of these kind of FERPA is about the privacy of the student and what the school family, or I believe anyone in general. Anyone in general, yeah. Yeah, and then HIPAA is uh, more. Um, so the the next question I have uh, is for someone with um, who a student who already has a therapist back at home, should they try to find new ones at the university? Okay, that's that's an excellent question. So it depends on the therapist that you have at home, and whether or not that therapist is willing to do Skype or FaceTime with you. I know a lot of students who stayed connected to a really supportive therapist that they get along well with when they come to school because that therapist is willing to, uh, you know, digitally meet. Um, some therapists are not willing to do that or can't do that, and then that might, you know, then that would lead to I need to find someone um, where, you know, where I'm going to school who can be supportive of me. Um, and most schools nowadays, because of resources, are, um, are referring students out to the local community. Um, some schools do a really good job of having a list of, of um, available therapists and the insurances they take that are in the local community. Um, some schools provide 24-hour online uh, access to therapists through programs. I've seen this at a lot of community colleges recently. Um, and other schools are just, you know, referring students out to the community and the students 
are kind of on their own. So it, it covers the gamut in what's out there and um, and then also what is it that the student's original therapist is willing to do or not. But if a student is going off to college and finds therapeutic support really helpful, I would really encourage that person to continue that. And then in the last one in this series of questions, um, should the student go back to school to learn or train with a specific job, an outcome at the end that they've already Yeah, um, another really good question. And that's kind of like the question, the question of our culture these days. Um, I think because of the cost of higher education, we feel this enormous anxiety to know what we want to do when we enter higher education. Unfortunately, if, if you're a young adult, often you don't know. You haven't had enough life experiences. Some people do, right, if you have a particular um, type of uh, skills and, and aptitudes that you know you've always been good at math and science and you know you want to be an engineer, and then that's kind of an easy path to follow. But most young adults don't know what they want to do. And so uh, taking that into consideration when choosing a school and being able to enter into a program that gives you some time to explore um, and to have more life experiences that will inform those decisions. You, know, you don't want to make a career choice based on the one value of money. Um, it's an important factor in, in, in what you do for work, obviously. Um, and also when you're taking out a lot of loans, like most people have to, to go to college these days. But people who choose a occupation based solely on income often um, don't stick with it and are unhappy. And so thinking carefully about, do I have enough life experiences to, to be able to say I really want to be a doctor? Um, here um, at Boston University, we have 17 different colleges on, an, on campus, and students apply to colleges, only one of them is a College of Arts and Sciences, a liberal arts college. The other ones, if you go into the School of Hospitality or Sargent College of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences and you get through your first year of, of studies and you decide that's not what you want, those credits may or may not carry over. So it's, it's uh, important to think about where you're going to college and whether or not you have the room to choose later on down the line. And make and I and I I don't think personally as as a person I'm a big believer in liberal arts so this is my just personal opinion that I don't think most 18 19 20 year olds really know what they want to do and I think that's why we're seeing so much angst on college campuses we have a lot of unhappy students who you know have invested an enormous amount of money and they don't like what they're studying uh, and they feel trapped so in in the chat uh, Gail asks. Uh, I wonder how you handle folks who have student loan and do not finish the course they Okay, so that's a really important question, and that happens a lot. So um, it depends on the type of loan that was taken um, and who gave it to them. Um, but this does happen to students. Um, that, you know, some loans, some federal loans, if you took federal loans and you never finished college and you now have you know, um, a pile of money that you owe uh, through some federal educational loan program and you have been determined to be totally disabled, those loans can be discharged. But that is a process. Um, most people aren't at that place when this happens. 
Uh, some universities will uh, not take away your financial aid right away, but it will after a semester or two of that. Um, so without knowing what the details are, it's hard to be, answer that really concretely around what type of loan uh, and how you handle it. But how, what I always encourage and um, try to empower students to do is to have conversations with the financial aid office about it. Here at BU, if you leave school for a medical leave of absence and you work with the, um, we have an office that actually helps students do this, they will help with the financial aid office. They will say they're taking a leave for a medical reason and then that doesn't impact their financial aid. So there, there are paths that you can take so that it doesn't negatively impact you. But you have to make those connections through financial aid or through the school loan program, or even, you know, depending upon the terms of if you took a bank, whether or not a serious medical condition, which is a mental health condition, applies to that, um, where that falls. With that. So, so what offices within a university should so, students be looking for? Some offices, so at a place, a lot of universities have like a service center where uh, students who are um, dealing with multiple offices, you know, so for example, if you take a medical leave of absence and you live on campus, this service center will let the res life department know and they'll let your, your school know and they'll, um, they'll let financial aid know and it's like one-stop shopping to remove yourself from campus when you make that decision that I want. Um, so a, a student service center, um, often embedded in student services or in a financial aid department, um, would be places to start, or even if you have no idea where to start for something like that, looking at the Dean of Students is a good place to look or to talk to people in those offices. Yeah. You know, one thing that comes up a lot during these conversations, or generally around employment, is disclosure. Of, of And, you know, we, we talk a lot about how that works on the job, but how does that work within school and getting... So if that's, that's another um, really important topic, David. And so they're really... There's a nuance of self-identification and disclosure. And so when you apply to colleges, you are asked if you'd like to self-disclose. Um, you don't have to. That's a choice, right? Disclosure is a choice. You're not hiding anything if you choose not to disclose. You're not lying if you do not check off that box on, on the, you know, accepted student's medical information. You can come to school without self-identifying health, and when you get to school, you can figure out that you might decide, I really need here. I need to have extra time for exams, or I need to be able to have preferential door, or I work in group projects and I'm highly anxious and I need to, um, you know, be able to do, have a different format for presenting my information. If that's the case, then you can disclose to the Office of Disability Services that you have a disability. And schools are required to have that um, process well, very visible to students. You go on a website, you look for their Office of Disability Services, and there will be forms that you need to fill out and a provider needs to fill out to document and verify that you have a mental health condition and why you need an accommodation. That goes back to the school. They determine that this accommodation is reasonable and then you're granted that. Schools handle the disclosure of those accommodations differently. Some schools require students to take the letter of accommodation to the particular professor. Other schools may email the letters to the professor and that only requires the student and the professor 
depending upon the type of, of accommodation that you They don't have to be just academic uh, accommodations either. They can be residential. You may um, know that, say, for example, you live with a mental health condition that if you don't get a good night's sleep, um, it can be really detrimental to your wellness. So you can seek a reasonable accommodation of having a single room. Um, and that happens more and more. You can also seek to bring therapeutic animal on campus um, and have a place to live with that if that's something that really is going to level the playing field and allow you to access your educational opportunity. If you, if you have had accommodations in high school and you're going off to college, I would recommend self-identifying with the Office of Disability Services in advance because sometimes it can take a while to get those accommodations. So if you wait until you arrive on campus in September, you may not get those accommodations until middle of October and then by then half the semester's gone by and you may have uh, experienced detrimental effects of not having um, in, in the room, Charlotte is asking, what if I get sick after I enroll? Follow up is, are there any scholarships uh, for graduate school? And I'm guessing if you've left for Okay, so um, what if I get sick after I'm enrolled? So uh, if I go to college and I don't have a mental health condition and then a mental health condition emerges while you're at college, so that could take take many, many forms, but it happens all the time. Uh, the, the ages of 18 to 24 are the most common times that a mental health condition does emerge because often, you know, students are moving away from home and they have new stressors on them, and so it's that stress vulnerability time of life uh, where students can begin to experience mental health. So what I would recommend is if you recognize it in yourself, don't, would be going to the student health services and saying this is what's going on, um, and they will, they can help you begin to manage that that condition right there on campus. Some students end up being hospitalized, and then they can come back to campus um, and semester. And a reasonable accommodation for students is if someone has to be hospitalized while they're on campus and in semester and they're in the hospital for two or three days and they miss an exam, it is a reasonable accommodation to have that exam. Um, and that's something that you would work with the Office of Disability around. Um, are there scholarships for graduate school? It depends on the school. So, um, for example, the School of Social Work here at Boston University um, does provide scholarships and they have a program for people who are kind of doing a career shift coming into the career of social work at a later age, and so they offer scholarships, um, not full, but partial. So it depends upon the school and the program. Uh, Louise has a more general, are, are there ways to explore a career choice before attending college to best? Yes, so um, there are a couple of strategies that I think are really useful. One is just to work and to work a job. It doesn't even have to be a job that you think will be part of your career. Um, what happens when you work is that you begin to develop your occupational values, things that are important to you. Like, I, I, I don't want to work in a customer-facing role ever, right? I, had, I was a waitress, and I hated it. It's like, okay, I don't want to ever be in the service industry. I learned that from that job. So any job can help you begin to develop things that are important to you. You might like being in a fast-paced environment. You might like um, being stimulated all the time. You might like working with people. And you learn that by any sort of job. Even negative job experiences help you figure out what you want and don't want. So 
working is important, right? It helps you figure that out. Another way to explore careers that is really, really helpful and useful is if you have some idea of, like, I think I might like to work in artificial intelligence or I think I might want to be an event planner or I might want to be an elementary school teacher, is to arrange through your network of people that you have or through people that you know who have a network is arranged to do what we call an informational. And that's, and we do it all the time here with students, is connecting them with people who are already working in a particular career. And then the student goes to interview that person about their career path, how they got there, what they like about it, what they don't like about it, um, you know, what sorts of uh, experiences did they think, uh, do they think would be helpful for the student. They're really informative. Um, in terms of making decisions about what to major in, but they also are really informative and beneficial in that you begin to develop your own little network of people. So, for example, I have a student right now who's really interested in artificial intelligence um, and in the Internet of Things. And I know someone who works for a company who does this type of work. And so I'd ask this person, can you meet with this student? because they, they're interested in this type of career. And so they're going to meet and have this conversation, and that will help the student figure out, well, do I really want to be a computer science major, or do I want to get into data analysis? Do I want to be an engineer? These are the choices he's thinking about. This is a conversation I hope will help. So those two strategies, go, go out and work, and then do informational interviews, are helpful. And also, I mean, vocational rehabilitation offices, We'll do standardized testing of your values and your interests and your aptitudes, and that can sometimes be informative if you don't really feel like you have a handle on what is it that is important to me, that will give me meaning, and then what am I good at? Um, so next, the next question is, Anne Renee asks, what are some of the most common challenges or barriers that arise when assisting those with mental health find stable employment or return? Um, okay. Finding, uh, returning to school, so I think, and, and finding employment. So one, I think uh, both of these issues, the, the buckets of issues that seem to be most difficult for people, whether they're returning to school or going to work, if we think of the rubric of choosing, getting, and keeping, choosing school, getting into school, keeping my status as a student, uh, choosing work, getting work, keeping my role in a company or a place of business, is that most people struggle in the keeping domain. So uh, wellness at work, wellness at school, what are, the, what are the daily rhythms I need to do to take care of myself so I can get out of the door on time and get to class on time and finish my projects on time? What are the daily tasks I need to do um, to stay well so I can get out of my apartment on time and get to work on time? and deal with my supervisor who maybe I don't like. Um, so those skills and the supports around wellness at work and wellness at school tend to be areas where people really struggle. Um, so talking about very practical strategies around wellness, and remember wellness can be, um, is, is personally defined. So it can be, you know, your health and mental health and your sleep and your diet and your um, your circle of peers and friends and colleagues and what you like to do for fun. What are, what are the strategies that help you perform your best? 
and making sure that they're part of that student's daily rhythm when they return and making sure that they can be part of a back to work. Um, for example, you know, students who are coming back to school after having been away for a while. Uh, I had a student who had been out of college for uh, over almost, almost 24 months, and when he was returning, all of his friends had already graduated. So he lost his social circle, and he was very worried about being lonely because loneliness was, is something that would often send him into a spiral, into a sort of paralyzing depression where he stopped going to class, and he didn't want that to happen again. So we sat and talked about, well, how could he build a new set, you know, of social connections on campus? So he joined a theater group. He got a part-time job. Um, you know, he uh, signed up to, uh, you know, use uh, common space study areas, so he was around people, a couple of strategies. And then we would meet to make sure, are you getting enough sleep each night? Are you going to the gym? How's it going with making friends kind? Because he knew that that's where he had struggled in the past. Same thing around work is getting a new job, I'm going off to work, my anxiety is so paralyzing in the morning that I often don't get out of the house on time. All right, so what would help you get out of the house and not be late? I could use a wake-up call. Okay, let's, what about the night before? Let's take your medications that help you sleep a little bit earlier. Let's lay out your clothes the night before. Let's, um, I will give you a wake-up call, have that coffee ready to turn on in the morning just practical routines that are really, really supportive that people don't always think of and often need support and encouragement around can be really helpful in people keeping these valued roles. You know, you, a second ago you talked about the choose gig, uh, about these things. If we if we take a step back and people for people who are at the considering, you know, they're considering, what are the main, you know, identify in advance for making that choice? Well, that's a great question, and I think, in some ways, it's the same things that any student who's going off to college is going to think about. Um, and it doesn't matter how old you are, but you know, wh where do I want to go and why? You know, you got to have, you got to answer the why question, right? Why do I want to go back? Um, you know, what's important? What am I going to need for supports? And supports can be financial aid, and it could be a tutor, and it could be a quiet place to study or a single dorm room if you're going to live on campus. Um, where, where are the resources on campus? Uh, knowing about that beforehand can be really helpful. Um, most universe colleges have really good websites where you can spend time um, looking at and finding out, well, where are people on this campus that can be helpful? So, you know, Looking at the why and the how of, of returning to college is really, really important, I think, before you go. Right. Um, Susan asks, uh, she says, I am with an ACT um, and have, and, and for anyone, I think she means assertive community treatment team, uh, and have been working closely with the campus wellness director slash clinician and the client and ACT uh, to create a triage and support and open communication between campus and ACT slash crisis. Uh, it is very exciting and a great way to build a network of support. And and so I realize it doesn't end with the question there, but you know, what do you think about those kind of coordinations and, and, and integration? Uh, so there, it's great, and I think it's happening on a lot of campuses. Is looking at different ways to build um, different levels of support for students on campus. So. Obviously, there's the Office of Disability Services and Student Health Services. Um, even if, if it's a community college that doesn't have an on-site health 
center, they often have a public-private partnership with someone in the community. But then beyond that, there are um, relationships with local hospitals. Uh, there are student groups on campus like Active Minds um, that uh, do a lot of uh, advocacy around mental health on campuses that can provide support. Uh, more and more peer mentoring is being used um, within colleges, and we actually have a, a project here at BU where we are training upper-class students who live with mental health conditions to be academic mentors to incoming first and second year students who also have mental health conditions. So, you know, really um, enriched peer support can also uh, be another way of building that network of support. Uh, training faculty and staff in the skills of empathy um, so that uh, faculty and staff can feel confident in saying, I'm a little worried about you and how can I be helpful. Um, that also extends the network of support. Um, I went to a, uh, did a presentation yesterday on this very topic, and I had a young woman who said that she was at, um, had to drop out of college, and she had four, profe four professors and two TAs, so probably taking some science class, really, really struggling. And only one professor said to her, I noticed that you're really struggling. Um, and that was so disheartening to her. So building support that way by empowering faculty and staff to feel comfortable and approaching people to say, I'm worried about you. You know, you haven't been coming to class or, you know, you're falling asleep in class or you're all of a sudden your grades, all the signs that someone's in distress. Yeah. You know, we've been talking here for, for about 40 minutes about all, all these different support networks and, and approaches to returning to school. And it'd be remiss of me to not ask you about the program that uh, you're involved in here at Boston University called Nateo. Uh, and for for anyone who's listening, can you just give us a quick overview of the program? Sure. So um, we have a program here at BU called Nateo, N-I-T-E-O, which means thrive in Latin. And it has been designed specifically for college students who took a medical leave of absence because of a mental health condition. And the aim of the the program is to really empower those students to uh, return to school as quickly as possible because we see it as a way of shifting the trajectory away from um, not returning and having uh, being underemployed or unemployed and uh, having to use uh, disability benefits because we know that most students who leave college for a mental health and we also know that in today's world, some form of higher education, doesn't have to be a college degree, but some form of higher education is indicative of economic self-sufficiency. So a high school diploma is not going to be um, the pathway to economic sufficiency for most. Maybe for some, but for most it is not. For example, in Boston, if you live in this area, it takes three to four full-time minimum wage jobs to be able to live, um, and that's true for a lot of places around the country. So um, most occupations and career ladders ask people for further education beyond high school. So anyways, that's why Nateo was developed, and it is a one-semester-long program. Students can come from all over the country. It doesn't have to be just the greater Boston area, but we do not provide, house, provide their own housing. So as a result, most of our students are from the Massachusetts, New Hampshire area. And it is a three-day-a-week program. They get assigned a coach 
who works individually with them around their plans to return to school, uh, what we talked about earlier, making a really solid plan for return. And then they take a, a range of classes, uh, a wellness seminar, um, academic writing, academic remediation. They do a photo voice class on prejudice and discrimination to help them resist the shame that they feel or that has been put on them because they've experienced a medical leave of absence for mental health. Um, they do a class uh, that helps with public speaking. Um, and so it's a simulated academic environment with 15 or 16 people in the room with you who all have gone through the same thing. So there's enormous peer support. Um, and we have uh, had really great results. We're seeing about seven school and then about 90% return to school or work within. And we also do college coaching. So we call this kind of at the elbow coaching for students in the greater Boston area who are struggling to stay in school and we help them stay in school. What's happening, what's getting in the way, what are the resources on your campus, getting students hooked up to those resources. We do a lot of texting how we communicate, uh, Skyping and FaceTiming, Zooming. We, we help students Zoom into their classes. We get permission for them to do that if they're out. So we kind of like roll up our sleeves and say, you know, what can we do to help you finish your degree? Um, and try to leave no stone unturned around that program as well. And then we offer a class on campus for BU students. We're also offering it at a couple of community colleges um, and a college out in Minnesota called LEAD BU, which is the combination of first hour is about wellness strategies, um, things like empathy, uh, thinking traps, cognitive behavioral types of strategies, uh, wellness rhythms, identity issues. That is the first hour. And then the second hour is a supported study hall. Um, and it's a place that we find that students are struggling to stay in their particular colleges. They learn those skills and they gain peer support. And they have, um, they have tutoring around things that they, you know, live tutoring. Okay, I'm struggling to get someone right there to help. Thank you for that description, Dory. It's a great program, and I know it's really been growing. Um, Kelly asks, what are the boundaries a, of a student advisor at the university? Should they advise students on skills and abilities and how that relates to a field of study? or only stick with advising students on schedules, classes, et cetera? So um, that is, that's determined by the school and their advising program. So I know some schools that your academic advisor is helping you choose your classes based on the major that you have said you want to you know, major in, my area of study. So they help you figure out your four years or six years, however long it's going to take. These are the sequence of courses you need to take, this will fulfill the degree requirement. Then there are some smaller schools that have kind of a bi-level of advising where you are advised on that, you know, what kind of like what, what does it mean to be a college student, when do you register, where do you go to for resources, here's what you need to take your first couple of years to fulfill your general ed requirements, and then once you make a decision on a field of study then you're assigned an advisor from that department. Um, so it does depend on the school. I think schools are working hard to make their, at least my experiences, is that this is an area that is growing and developing, that it's an opportunity uh, for relationships uh, to really be more robust than they have been in the past for students so that it can be real supportive of students. And, and not just their 
not just their academics and their employ future employment, but kind of their experience in that higher educational environment. Um, Kathy asks, uh, what do you recommend for a student who has self-identified they have a disability and when asking for uh, help or accommodation is told by the professor to get it? Okay, so that, um, uh, <laughs> that's, it, it could be a violation of the ADA. It depends on, on how that uh, reasonable accommodation uh, has been um, proposed to the professor. So if a student just goes up to a professor and informally discloses that they have a disability and I need extra help, um, the, the professor doesn't have to provide that extra help. But if you go through your Office of Disability Services and it's been determined by the university that this is indeed a reasonable accommodation, and the accommodation is maybe extra um, time with the professor or access to free tutoring on campus, then, then they have to provide it. So it depends on how the student self-identifies. So if someone does that and the professor says, well, sorry, you have to go get your own tutor, then I would want to know, did that go through the Office of Disability Services? They could then take that answer and go to the Office of Services and then have the Office of Disability Services help negotiate with that student, with that professor for the extra help. Sure. Um, and the next question comes from Becky, and Becky asks, how is funding coordinated for a student who comes from another state and needs services while in school, like peer support? Act, et cetera. So um, it's a good question. So peer support usually doesn't cost anything unless that you're looking for a personal care attendant. Um, peer support is usually free. Um, Act being assertive treatment. Um, I'm not sure how that would work if you are receiving like Department of Mental Health assertive community treatment services in one state and you move to another state. If you were a, each, every state has different eligibility requirements to be a recipient of public mental health funding. So I think it would require some research to know whether or not you could transfer that, that eligibility to another state. Um, so if, if that's what you're asking, that, that's what I think would need to happen. We haven't had to do that for students, um, students who have been publicly funded mental health services who have used our services here have are at a community college or a state college and then they come here, they still are receiving those services. Who, who I guess would you I, ask maybe you know, uh, in well, the new state? If you're, well, if, so if you are receiving that kind of service through your, your mental health department in your state, I would start with your care manager because if you're you will have someone on your team who should be able to do the research for you on that question. Okay. I think that the starting place is probably the most important yeah. following yeah. up from. It certainly sounds like it will depend. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so we have a, another question, and, and this one isn't formed as a question, but I know there's a question in there. Uh, and it says, I'm interested in apprenticeship opportunities that encourage future schooling later on. Uh, being able to secure and succeed uh, in apprenticeship first uh, helps our participants know more about what they need to study versus taking classes that may not apply or be necessary for advancement. In right. So when you're talking about an apprenticeship, um, my immediate thought is that you're talking about some sort of skilled trade. Um, and I think that, that the world 
makes the distinction between apprenticeships. So if you're seeking apprenticeships for the folks that you're serving, then knowing what it is that they want to do first and foremost, what are the skilled areas that they think they might want to get into, and then having to develop those relationships with people where they could sponsor those apprenticeships, much like an internship, is the work that maybe a, a supported employment person would do. Um, for example, we have here in Massachusetts, we have a furniture restoration group that provides apprenticeships for people who are interested in that, right? You have to have a very particular interest and and uh, to want to do that work. So, But we do have a group that provides those apprenticeships to students. We also have programs that um, through some of the clubhouses in Massachusetts that are called Cooking for a Career, and they uh, provide, you know, short-term career education, and then they go out and they work in the service industry around cooking, which then can help them further decide, okay, I want to go off and get certified, um, or I want to go to cooking school and do this. Um, so they're really valuable opportunities, as, as you're making the point, where people can solidify their interest in doing this or not. And the same thing with internships. Um, there are some great websites that you can, you know, um, get notified around all the different internships that are available. Many of them are unpaid, uh, which can be hard for some folks. Um, but internships, again, are another way to decide, do I really like this or not? Is this something I want to pursue? And I know a lot of people who take an internship and they decide that they don't want to pursue that career afterwards. Um, they learn a lot in that in those experiences. So they're really important. Um, and a lot of people are willing to do unpaid internships. Um, so connecting with employers. And some bigger companies do paid internships. They tend to be reserved for undergraduates and graduate students. It can be hard to find them for high school students, but they're out there. Right. So I'm, I'm going to uh, – we're, we're running short on time, so I'm going to try to lump some questions together here to, to get at kind of themes that people are asking. Uh, and one theme that I, I see showing up uh, is gaps uh, in employment. You know, it's been – you know, some of these pre-sales, 13 years since they last worked. And they volunteer between those times, but they don't know how to approach – you know, their resume or, you know, what they should do. And and I want to add that, you know, for they, they, they say this person says in particular considering switching to a skills-based resume rather than yeah. chronological. Yeah. And, and yeah. from my perspective, I, I think that's a bad choice. You know, it only points out that there's something to look for in terms of being wrong instead of, you know, showing what really happened in chronological order and adding that volunteer experience in. But I'd like to hear what you think about both gaps in employment so, and, I think and you, the right. So that's they're really important questions because it, um, you know, it's it's a reality. Um, but people stop working for all sorts of reasons, right? People stop working because they're parenting. People stop working because they have health conditions. People stop working because they have the opportunity to travel and see the see part of the country and they didn't work for two and a half years. So given that, what we recommend is that you do do a skills resume, but you also have timelines down. But you don't go, um, instead of saying from August 2018 to October 2018, we just say put the year down. So here's what I did in that time. Um, and then if there is a gap, 
where you weren't working or volunteering or taking classes in time, then being coached on how do I have the conversation to address that time, um, that time off. You know, I know a lot of people who take time off for reasons um, unrelated to a mental health condition, and you're not required to disclose that you have a mental health condition in an interview. Um, so finding a way to come up with a narrative that you feel comfortable with that maybe is I took, you know, I, I, I last worked three and a half years ago and I had the opportunity to take some time off and I'm getting back into the job market now kind of statement or, you know, while I took time off, I volunteered and did these things um, or I took time off, um, I experienced a health condition or I was taking care of an elderly parent. Sometimes those things come in tandem. So. Um, everyone has a personal story, so working with people to craft that personal story in a way that they feel comfortable with and they can share in an interview. Um, Skills-based rev- uh, resumes are uh, the way to go, um, even if you don't have a mental health condition. And, you know, If you look at any college, career, office, they are helping students build skills-based resumes because they don't have a lot of experiences, right? They only have a college degree and maybe a few summer jobs. And today's students often don't have very many jobs behind them. So focusing on your skills um, is is really important in the resume. And that means using very discrete, active verbs uh, to describe the tasks that you did and the skills that you did. Off the top of your head, you know where people might go to look for, you know, guidance on crafting that sort of resume? Uh, yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> you can Google anything. You can go to LinkedIn, has great examples. You can go to Glassdoor, all the work websites. They have resources where you can see examples of, of these types of resumes. So. Yeah, all right. Uh, the next question uh, we have, and, and this is another grouping, but I think this one kind of gets at, what a, what, how do you address, help people who think and are afraid to feel they have nothing to offer? You know, that, that it's so much that, that – this gap that they bring nothing to the table. Right, right. So that they they really feel uh, left out. Maybe right. left out or lacking in confidence that they um, can contribute to a particular work environment or to a work role. And so often what I do with people who come and have been out of the workforce for a while, and we focus also on people's personal qualities um, and some of the personal characteristics that they have, and and that takes time to help people be able to take a personal strengths-oriented sort of assessment of yourself, Um, being able to say with confidence, well, you know, I'm good at problem solving, and I'm a really good listener, and I have a really flexible mindset, so when someone asks me to change what I'm doing uh, at 1.30 when I thought at 1.15 I was doing something else, I'm I'm pretty unflappable, and that's a really good quality to have in a workplace. And so teasing out those qualities um, and those personal characteristics uh, as coming at it from these are my strengths, this is what I contribute, that's something that's important to do with if you work with someone who's helping you go back to work, um, or even a therapist can really help you do that if you don't have someone who's helping you go back to work, but you have a therapist is, you know, focusing on, what are my qualities? Um, because at the end of the day, and I and I, you know, I say this with personal experience, and also as someone who hires people with disabilities, um, and I hire people from really eclectic backgrounds and people who've been out of work for a long time, is 
I feel pretty confident that I can train this person to do the job that I'm hiring them for. So when they come in for the interview, I want to know about who they are as a person. Um, and so I look for that. You know, I tell people, I need, I need someone who's really flexible and adaptable. You know, tell me a little bit about how you describe yourself with those qualities because, you know, we deliver services here and, you know, every plan go, becomes unplanned in a quick moment to be able to deal with that. So those kinds of conversations help tease out what you can bring to the workplace because everyone has you. Um, but if we've been beaten down by our experiences or we haven't had people pointing it out to us, it can be hard to articulate it. So finding someone who can help you articulate it and discover it again, because you have it. Everyone has it. Everyone has strength, even if you haven't worked. And if you think about the newbies graduating from college, you know, I, I just had a family member graduate from college with a liberal arts degree who had very little work experience and he got a job, right? And he's being, he's learning on the job some hard skills, but he brings a lot of personal qualities to the environment. And that's how he sold himself to get the job. Well, well, thank you, Dory, for taking your time in this past hour with us to answer everyone's questions. And thank you, everyone who has joined us this afternoon and taking the time to, to learn something And new. I'd like to offer just yeah. one last resource as I see people are sharing some resources. And I think it's great um, is that you're sharing resources. Another really excellent resource if you're looking for work and you are a person with a disability um, and you live in the New England area, but I think is is a program called Work Without Limit. Um, they are uh, they are a job site for both employers and and people seeking to work who live with disabilities, and they have an enormous um, number of resources on their website. So good place to start. All right, thank you. Sorry, but I should have asked if there was any one last thing you wanted to share. Um, the next Ask Me Anything About Employment session is coming soon, and because you signed up for this, you'll receive an announcement by email. Uh, in the next few days, you should also get a survey about your experience today, and we'd love your feedback about this event. Thank you again, and we look forward to having you uh, join us. And again, thank and, you for your time, Dory. And thank you, everyone. And if you if you want to reach out personally, I'm happy to respond. So I know someone actually did um, reach out the other day. So. Feel free to and, reach out. And how would they get a hold of you? Uh, Dory H D O R I F B U dot. Thanks, Dory. Have a great day. Okay. Bye. Bye.